Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to a new series of Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and today I'll be talking to you about A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. This is a very late episode, which I first had a stab at recording last year, and then I added bits and re-recorded bits and yada yada yada. Anyway, to make up the time, there'll be a new Foul Papers out on Sunday in a couple of days, and then from then on, the podcast will be out every Friday as planned, instead of the uh, random when-we-feel-like-it approach of last year, and today, and Sunday. If you're new to the podcast, then welcome. Take the weight off your legs, copper squat, feel free to smoke or breastfeed, we're cool and European about it. Who are we? We, Ear Read This, are a weekly podcast, usually, whose episodes alternate between critical appreciations of texts and a more irreverent bit of literature-based comedy we call Foul Papers. If you want to hear myself and my co-host Adam do sketches and chat a bit more loosely about books, then they're the episodes with Foul Papers in the title. But if you're here for the immensely, frighteningly serious and tight-trousered, walnut-panelled literary criticism, then you're in the right place. Close the door do your flies up, and grab a moustache from the bowl. In the previous series, I talked about four of Shakespeare's early comedies, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Taming of the Shrew, Comedy of Errors, and Love's Labour's Lost. Do go check those out, but with this warning, the first couple I did, I, I wasn't wholly confident of what my focus was, and the episodes are a bit sketchy and dense, like a shifty toffee pudding. The information is still there, but the delivery is a bit off, so you've been warned. Today's episode rounds out my run of the early comedies. Next time I talk about Shakespeare, I'll be talking about a certain famous tragedy which has a lot in common with the dream. Hint, young love, raven dove wordplay, and stabbing yourself in a tomb. Beyond that, for the rest of this series, I'll be talking about The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare's eight-part series of history plays concerning five English kings, namely three Henrys in a Richard sandwich. I'll also with Adam, be talking about lots of other books by other people, so if you're not that into Shakespeare, we do accept and support the existence of other authors, promise. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for the support so far. You might have noticed we have decided to call this Series 2, which um, seems a bit grand for a podcast that's been running for a few months. But the last 13 episodes, we've really been experimenting with what works and what doesn't with the podcast, both on the technical side and the content side too. Um, There's much more to do, but I I feel a lot clearer about what these Shakespeare episodes I do on my TARD are for. And likewise, Adam and I feel slightly clearer about what we want to do with the Foul Papers stuff and our other episodes together. So we've decided that new year, new plan, new series. Not going to go into too much detail about um, what is coming up, but I can tell you that we've thought out more of a structure with what titles we choose to talk about. Last year felt a bit like trying out various formats and lurching from um, Shakespeare to Muriel Spark with neither of us in the driver's seat. Get it. So thank you again for sticking with us. And as always, if you've got any questions or remarks or requests or poems, please feel free to email at earreadthis at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. That concludes the New Year Bulletin. Let's uh, jump out of season now and talk A Midsummer Night's Dream. First off, this has been a surprisingly difficult play for me to talk about because so far it's the one I'm most familiar with and even more than the others, the one I enjoy reading the most. In some ways, it's easier to talk about a play you've had to recently research or reread with fewer existing preconceptions and opinions. 
However, this podcast is called Ear Read This, so being biased as a lover of reading this play is hardly a handicap. I will heartily recommend you read this play, though I wouldn't go as far as William Hazlitt, who concluded, after seeing the play, that poetry and the stage do not agree well together, and that this play should not be performed but only read, allowing the imagination to roam free. It is an interesting suggestion, as the play concerns itself obsessively with the imagination, as we will soon discover. And it's not at all hyperbolic to suggest that you'll get a considerably different experience and type of enjoyment from reading the play instead of watching it. It is, for my money, the funniest and prettiest of Shakespeare's plays, and the first that comes to mind when hearing contemporary descriptions of him as honey-tongued Shakespeare, melodious, mellifluous Shakespeare in whom the sweet and witty soul of Ovid lives on. Gentle Shakespeare, the sweet swan of Avon, and just beginning to push it a little bit, talk of the large streams of honey and sweet nectar flowing from the gentle spirit of our pleasant Willie. You come across a lot of this sort of thing when you start to read Shakespeare's criticism, and if you were more familiar or interested in the tragedies, or the history plays, or just the later plays, if you were a Hamlet guy, say, you might think... Well, yes, the poetry's all very fine, but it seems to be playing him down a bit to paint him as such a sugary warbler. If, however, you think more of As You Like It, Love's Labour's Lost, Romeo and Juliet, maybe Richard II, but in particular, <laughs> but in particular, this play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, the gentle spirit of Pleasant Willie is more than evident. Evident in lines like, These are the forgeries of jealousy. And never since the middle summer's spring met we on hill, in dale, forest or mead, by paved fountain or by rushy brook. Or this, the winds, piping to us in vain, as in revenge have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs. Or this, the ploughman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. Or this, the quaint mazes in the wanton green for lack of tread are indistinguishable. It would be fair to think any playwright would be unsurprised to count those as a choice pick of lines from his or her entire back catalogue. Yet those that I've just listed are not only from a single scene, but a single speech from A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it's not even the more, the more famous lyrical speech that begins, I know a bank where the wild time blows. In fact, Midsummer Night's Dream, his second shortest play, is such an embarrassment of riches that it's been a dangerous temptation to just list them out for you. But it's more than just pretty. If it were pointlessly attractive, it could be accused of being brilliant but useless, like a lighthouse in a swamp. However, this is not purple prose, or purple verse, not even this. It fell upon a little western flower, before milk white, now purple with love's wound. Because despite its prettiness, as you read the play, Mentally producing your own stage version, it's impossible not to marvel at A Midsummer Night's Dream's slickness, galloping pace, and effortless equilibrium between the four strands of story which seem in summary not to hold much promise of interdependency. Namely, these strands are the forthcoming marriage between a duke and a woman that he wooed with his sword, four young lovers with messy affections bolting into a wood, a disagreement over a changeling boy between two powerful fairies, and a group of tradesmen, all rude mechanicals, who decide to stage an amateur performance of an Ovidian tragedy. With these four storylines, Shakespeare created a relay of reflections and illusions that seems at one moment ferociously sexual, and at the next to be 
winking self-criticism. But what's more impressive is he did it all in the pert and nimble spirit of mirth. But before we skip lustily into the woods, let's quickly check in with Shakespeare's life during the period in which he was writing A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's 1595-ish. Shakespeare is in his early 30s and in his pomp, coming off the back of writing what will be a smash-hit tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. He is now well used to London life and has moved from his lodgings in Shoreditch to Bishopgate, an area favoured by well-off merchants. For at least a year, he has been resident playwright with the Lord Chamberlain's men and will have not only been writing new plays at a great speed, but rejigging and performing in older ones, like Titus Andronicus and The Taming of the Shrew. Shakespeare might at this point already have been planning to expand on an earlier sequence of plays, following Henry VI and Richard III. But during a summer of riots and a closing of the theatres, he had other things on his mind. He was not quite finished with Young Love and wanted to write more about it, but this time at a remove, in an ironical and comic way, instead of operatic and fraught. Perhaps in the writing of Romeo and Juliet, he'd even become somewhat bashful about his romantic excesses and wished to create for the stage a view of Young Love that was more in line with his own cynicism. Perhaps, of course, it was simply that a comedy was demanded of him and Shakespeare knew the life and death of Richard II was going to be pretty thin on laughs. Whether or not Romeo and Juliet had already been performed or had been, or simply been written, it seems likely that it came before Midsummer Night's Dream. Perhaps Shakespeare had already sensed the play's incipient power. Soon that play would be so well-known in London that would-be sonneteers would be mocked for being full of nothing but pure Juliet and Romeo. A Midsummer Night's Dream is reckoned to have been first performed on the occasion of Elizabeth Carey's marriage in 1596. Elizabeth Carey was the goddaughter of Elizabeth I, and her grandfather was Henry Carey, who, as Lord Chamberlain, was the patron of Shakespeare's then company, the Lord Chamberlain's men. His mother, that is Henry Carey's mother, was Mary Boleyn, sister of Anne, which made him the Queen's first cousin. Or possibly, since before Anne, Mary was Henry VIII's mistress, her half-brother. Whatever their exact relation, it is certain that Queen Elizabeth would have been in attendance, especially since as Lord Chamberlain, her sometimes cousin, maybe brother, was in charge of organising royal amusements, and presumably had tastes to the Queen's liking. Gathering at that wedding on the 19th of February would be royalty, noblemen, and of course, Shakespeare and his company of actors as well. The image of that mix of folk will serve as an entry point into the play, which also has a motley cast, roughly divided into four groups, who, unlikely as it first seems, will be brought together. For a celebration not unlike the festivities on the occasion of Elizabeth Carey's marriage. The first group of characters, and the ones who appear most briefly in the play, are the noble folk of Athens. Though not kings and queens, they might as well be. For our purposes, they are the top-ranked mortals in the universe of A Midsummer Night's Dream. They are Theseus, the Duke of Athens, Hippolyta, his betrothed, and also Aegeus. The name Theseus is taken from the cycle of Theseus stories, including most famously the tale of Theseus and the Minotaur. Though A Midsummer Night's Dream is listed along with uh, Love's Labour's Lost and The Tempest as one of Shakespeare's few plays without a direct source, Douglas Freak has argued that A Midsummer Night's Dream is more indebted to a mythic source than any other of those in the corpus. Freak identifies the following similarities between A Midsummer Night's Dream and the Theseus stories. The name Aegeus being given to the father of Hermia, Aegeus with an A at the start was the father of Theseus. 
Also, Freak compares the lovers in the wood to the Athenian youths forced into the Minotaur's labyrinth. The Minotaur itself, of course, is quite visually reminiscent of Bottom, once kitted out with an ass's head. Freak also compares Bottom's craft of weaving with Ariadne's web, and finds in Oberon aspects of both Minos the king and Daedalus, the the craftsman, magician, and maker of labyrinths. These sound like rather skinny threads, but are in fact quite consistent with the way that Shakespeare absorbed colour and information from his sources. He read and wrote fast, picked up what he liked, and moved on, with no time for minor detours. The one part of the Theseus myth that he did use directly for plot was the rather happenstance aspect of him taking an Amazon for his wife. Hippolyta, he says, I wooed thee with my sword, and won thy love doing thee injuries, but I will wed thee in another key. This makes it quite clear that Hippolyta is effectively a spoil of war, and although Hippolyta makes no overt complaint, this has led some to imagine her as there against her will, thereby kicking off this tale with so much to say about sexual power dynamics with the image of an imprisoned bride-to-be. Though we won't be staying long, it's quite evident that this Athens is living in a robust and brutish patriarchy. To you, your father should be as a god, Theseus tells Hermia, and indeed the duke, the soon-to-be Duchess and Aegeus wield godlike powers over their subjects. Aegeus, taking a dislike to Hermia's choice in lover, requests his daughter be destroyed in consequence. Theseus softens only as far as suggesting that she either die or be exiled to a shady cloister where she can live out her days chanting faint hymns to a cold and fruitless moon. And Hippolyta is silent. Either we take this as tacit compliance with her husband's patriarchal rule, or that she, being imprisoned by him, has learnt not to question what he says. But these godlike nobles are very shortly to be usurped. Christy Desmet has written that, having composed her beauties as a stylist in Prince Soft Wax, Aegeus therefore retains the right to disfigure Hermia. But in fact, any disfiguring or translating, to use a word that crops up more than once in the play, will be performed outside the walls of Athens. We'll hear more from the elite Athenians at the end of the play when they return. For now, let's have a look at those on the receiving end of their rule, the young Athenians, or the lovers. Presented before the Duke is the backstory of our four lovers. Lysander, who is in love with and loved in return by Hermia, Demetrius, who also loves Hermia, and poor old Helena, who loves Demetrius. Have you ever seen a group of people who have individually challenging outfits and thought... They're all so quirky that none of them are. Well, here we have four characters who immediately sound like lovers. Helena, like Helen of Troy. Lysander, like Leander, who swam the Hellespont. Demetrius, meaning devoted to Demeter, goddess of harvests and fertility. And Hermia, which you can get in your groin if you get too romantic too fast. But also is the female form of Hermes, son of Zeus. Individually, these four names might merit tragic poems, but together they are a lump, a coagulate lump of lover, in inverted commas. E.M. Forster, in Aspects of the Novel, makes the distinction between round and flat characters. Round characters, like Hamlet, Lear or Lady Macbeth, are inconsistent, surprising, and appear to have a mind of their own. Flat characters behave like people reduced to one or two basic facets or motivations. While they perhaps lend themselves toward being comedy characters, Bertie Wooster, for example, you could argue that a character as interesting and enigmatic as Iago is basically flat. His whole existence is welded to his simple mission, I will destroy them all. 
The round characters of Shakespeare, and round characters in general, are frequently praised, and people can make the mistake of thinking flat characters are a lesser achievement. From here we get the rather more unhelpful terms, two-dimensional and three-dimensional characters. Writing, you could say, is the art of disposing with the messy and irrelevant parts of life, and it's important to remember that a skillfully wielded flat character may cover more ground than a round one. Also remember that all real people, including writers, are round, and yet all of us are capable of being dull. The four leads, Lysander, Demetrius, Helena and Hermia, are in essence flat. They are motivated by their being in love. Throughout the play, Shakespeare seems to be gently mocking the essential flatness of lovers everywhere by portraying the romantic imagination as essentially one note and the artistic imagination as capable of infinite depth. As Lysander says, the course of true love never did run smooth, and sure enough, these quick bright things soon come to confusion. The time-old device of a love potion is all it takes to reverse the affections of Lysander and Demetrius, both of whom have been steadfast as any romantic hero up until this point. And yet, in the course of one short sleep, Lysander abandons his Hermia for who will not change a raven for a dove? Demetrius, likewise, will later say, my love to Hermia, melted as the snow, seems to me now as the remembrance of an idle gourd. It has been said that the moment any of Shakespeare's lovers begin to woo and write sonnets, they become flat. Demetrius and Lysander, springing awake with newfound passion for Helena, may be flat, but they also make the sp speed and vitriol of lovers' oaths very funny. One man going mad makes a good tragedy, more than one makes it comic. Demetrius and Lysander festoon their arms and flowery rhetoric on Helena, as well as calling the previously adored Hermia a cat, a burr, a vile thing, a tawny tartar, and some loathed medicine. The female lovers, stunned, suspect one another and exchange even more insults. Helena, who ran rather hopelessly after Demetrius into the wood, now has two men who are either vying for her hand or mocking her. Hermia, who was fleeing the unwanted affections of Demetrius with Lysander, now has only the loathing of both. All four, in fact, have been so quickly and utterly disfigured that the comedy seems to be getting laughs from the very idea of them having any individuality in the first place. The abruptness of their transformation makes a disrespectful mockery of Helena's belief that love looks not with the eyes but with the mind. What defined them early on was their earnest lovemaking. Now, just a few short scenes later, all earnest feeling has been destroyed, showing their words to be simply airy nothings, and these, no true profound lovers, but caricatures of lovers. When they are profound, they do not know it, such as Helena's, things base and things vile, holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity, foreshadowing both her own promotion from ignored maid to goddess, nymph, divine, and that of a man with an ass's head to a creature beloved of a fairy queen. She also gives a telling description of her and Hermia's former friendship. We, Hermia, like two artificial gods, have with our needles created both one flower, both on one sampler, sitting on one cushion, both warbling of one song, both in one key, as if our hands, our sides, voices and minds had been incorporate. So we grew together like to a double cherry, seeming parted, but yet a union in partition, Two lovely berries moulded on one stem. This cements the idea of not only the two female leads, but all four lovers, as a kind of eight-legged incorporate lump. Elsewhere in the play, this is made even plainer. Lysander protests to the Duke that he is equivalent in worth to Demetrius, saying significantly, 
I am as well derived as he, which can be taken either as meaning I am from equally noble birth, or perhaps I am written the same. There is also Puck, who causes all the confusion in the first place because he mistakes Lysander for Demetrius, as well as a continued reminder of transient identity in the fairy strand of the story, which revolves around a changeling child. Once the confusion has been resolved, the pairs of lovers form a harmonious and happy square. Helen Hackett, remarking on the phrase of Puck's two of both kinds makes up four, points out that four was considered in ancient numerology to be the number of concord. It's impossible not to notice, then, the concord that Shakespeare creates between his four groups of characters, too. The Athenian elite, the Athenian lovers, the fairies, and the mechanicals. Between all four, there exist commonalities and reflections, similar preoccupations or choices in imagery. To use one example, the pervasive use of moon imagery that hoves through the clouds at regular intervals. Right at the start of the play, Hippolyta has said, Four days will quickly steep themselves in night. Four nights will quickly dream away the time. And then the moon, like to a silver bow new-bent in heaven, shall behold the night of our festivities. The word moon is spoken a whopping 45 times and shared by all four creeds of characters in the play. Not only does Titania have a lot in common with Diana, Roman goddess, among other things, of the moon, but later, Starveling, one of the actors, will actually end up representing Moonshine, or the man in the moon, in the Mechanicals play. The moon is referred to as having chaste beams, and was associated with virginity and purity, but also with inciting lunacy and fickle sexual desire. But what's more interesting to me is that this werewolf's helping of moonlight isn't just there to latently set the tone. Shakespeare uses his lunar imagery to address not only the mechanics of his play, but one of its chief interests, the relationship between the imaginer and the thing imagined. It is Lysander who gets the key line, though it's safe to assume he little knows quite how much he is saying. Tomorrow night, when Phoebe doth behold her silver visage in the watery glass. Phoebe is another goddess of the moon, Greek this time, and a titan and daughter of Uranus. Mark Van Doren points out that Lysander has connected the image of the moon with the image of the cool water on which it shines, and hereafter they will be inseparable. In doing so, Lysander has unknowingly described one of the dynamics connecting the four groups of persons in the play. They start to act like shadows or reflections of each other. So now, on this midsummer night, let's turn from the lovers under the moon to their first and strangest reflection. Anthony Burgess writes, Since Sir James Barry and Enid Blyton, fairies have become debased and whimsical, but in Will's Warwickshire they were tough and dangerous, with not a tinkerbell among them. They were demons more than figurines in ballet shoes, not essentially malevolent, but, to use the theological term, uncovenanted powers. They were the pre-Christian gods reduced to wood spirits. And so they appear in A Midsummer Night's Dream, if we thought the Duke and Aegeus wielded godlike powers, their puny patriarchal influence has been lost like the moon behind a mountain upon the arrival into the play of the fairies. Even though the author of Elizabethan Fairies, Minor White Latham, said that Shakespeare was the first writer to portray fairies as virtuous and non-threatening, the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream still possess at least the ability to terrify and as Latham makes clear, their appearance on, Elizabeth, on an Elizabethan stage would have an audience ill at ease, not looking forward to their favourite show tune. 
Puck, also known as Robin Goodfellow, has his credentials as a devious mischief maker established early on. He misleads night wanderers, we hear, steals cream and laughs at the breathless housewives churning, takes on the likeness of a crab apple and, concealed in a gossip's drink, bobs against her lips and, oddly, her breasts. He also disguises himself as a footstool in order to slip from a sad ant's bum. Puck can also evidently travel great distances at enormous speed. He can even, he famously claims, put a girdle round the earth in 40 minutes. But even he is a pale companion next to his master Oberon and the other royal fairy, Titania. These two indeed seem to be uncovenanted pre-Christian powers. They command orders of followers, they can flit around the world at their pleasure and beyond it to other planets, kingdoms and fairylands. They speak as if they have travelled and observed the world since its creation, and while they appear virtually omnipotent, they both seem to be strangely purposeless. Oberon, we hear, has recently taken on the shape of Corin and wooed fair Philida with his panpipes. Titania, Oberon suggests, has been similarly engaged, and she herself expresses no want in the play beyond revels, dances and song with her fairy servants. It is perhaps coincidence, but it seems fitting that the flower, a pansy, with which Oberon decides to hoodwink Titania, is known as love in idleness. These powerful entities do seem to lead rather idle lives, implying either that their real motives are beyond us, or that the inevitable price of omnipotence and immortality is boredom. It's tricky to determine Oberon and Titania's true rank amongst the gods and other mythical powers they reference, but the fact that Oberon collects his love potion from one of Cupid's misfired arrows suggests that he is somewhere below the winged infant god. And on the topic of pulling rank, Oberon seems to make a playful reference to Queen Elizabeth. The arrow that Cupid misfired was first aimed at a fair vestal, or virgin, throned in the west. Elizabeth was commonly referred to as the Virgin Queen. The arrow of course misses, and as Oberon says, the imperial votress passed on in maiden meditation, fancy free. If we take this reference seriously, it completely distorts where we set the play. Or perhaps it's just further testament to the fairy's omnipotence, showing that Oberon cannot simply travel through space at whim, but time also. It is not the only reference to Queen Elizabeth. Oberon says, in a bit of particularly striking imagery, that he once sat upon a promontory and heard a mermaid on a dolphin's back. I remember reading this bit in school and puzzling over the redundancy of a mermaid sitting on a dolphin. Surely that was like an eagle riding an owl. Why would it bother? But the line apparently has a surprisingly real origin. In 1575, at Kenilworth Castle, the Earl of Leicester held a three-week celebration of his sovereign, Elizabeth I, possibly trying to marry her as he did so. It was one of these all-out Tudor carnivals of pageants, masks and banquets. One of its highlights was, get this, a mechanical mermaid riding a dolphin. The Earl has obviously heard the adage that the way to a woman's heart is through a mechanical mermaid riding a dolphin, though sadly it seems to have not paid off this time. What makes it particularly interesting for us, however, is that the three-week Lizfest at the Warwickshire Castle would have attracted commoners and noblemen alike, including perhaps John Shakespeare and his 13-year-old lad, Will. It's a long shot, but what a connection to be able to pull off years later and drop into a play that, yeah... I too was there for your mechanical mermaid on a dolphin moment. But I digress. What we have established is that the fairies have abilities and histories far beyond the mortal characters. 
They can appear and disappear. They are urgently present, yet also ancient, folkloric, and idle. Theseus, with his minotaur-killing heritage, might be attached to the world of myth by a silk thread, but Puck, Oberon, and Titania bristle and throb with it. They whirl out of the labyrinth, full of the language of magic and mythology. Though perhaps they don't come out of the labyrinth at all. Perhaps they remain in one. For the forest in which they dwell takes on something of the fairy's character, the everywhere and nowhereness, the suggestion of transgression and the ease of transformation. The forest that the lovers steal into has long become totemic of Shakespeare's comedies, but in fact only two of them take a forest as their chief setting, A Midsummer Night's Dream and As You Like It. It has long been held that the forest for Shakespeare was a place of transformation, much as it frequently is for Ovid. But it is also the scene of transgression. I will do thee mischief in the wood, threatens Demetrius at one point. In Act 4, when Theseus discovers the lovers sleeping out in the wild, he wonders if they have been observing the rite of May, an occasion for young people to leave the towns for the countryside and collect branches. It was a ritual associated with new growth and fertility and symbolised the bringing of nature into civilization. However, it was disapproved of by some who suspected the young people might see it as a fertile opportunity to branch out into other pastimes, free from the authorities' observance. And indeed, away from civilization, it seems, the usual considerations are off the table. Lysander tries his chances with Hermia, saying, although they are not yet married, One turf shall serve as pillow for us both, one heart, one head, two bosoms and one troth. And there are multiple references and threats of the likelihood of ravishment befalling the women once they are in the wood. By following him there, Demetrius warns, Helena is risking the rich worth of her virginity. Compounding the forest as this shifting, intangible location, the remark of Theseus about the rite of May makes the exact time of the play intangible too, for he also implies that it is close to Valentine's Day in February. And besides, Midsummer Eve, the most likely contender for the play's setting, is on the 23rd of June. This could be an editing oversight, as there are many examples of throughout Shakespeare, but if it is, it's a fitting oversight, as all supposed dates, Valentine's Day, the Rites of May, and the 23rd of June, Midsummer Night's Eve, Midsummer's Eve, have associations with courtship festivals and fertility. Fitting because A Midsummer Night's Dream is a highly erotic play, and not just for the four young mortal lovers. If Oberon and Titania's stories of each other are to be believed, they have insatiable sexual appetites that could stand proudly beside those of the Greek gods. And unlike the mortals who get knotted up in escape plans and affections of fathers, the fairies simply take what they want, though through manipulation rather than force. Whilst it is clear that Oberon wishes to trick Titania into sleeping with something repulsive, presumably to degrade her, the literal extent of the sexual act remains undisclosed in the play. Therefore, there are both clean, family-friendly productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream and also those which feature Titania travelling with a coterie of winged gimps. The open-endedness of words like sleep and lie are to thank for allowing this. But the eroticism is there, and the play may have been deemed far filthier in its day than now. A typically large Shakespeare quota of sexual puns proliferate the play. A couple of personal favourites being My cherry lips have often kissed thy stones, says Thisbe to the wall. Stones being both, well, stones and testicles. My other favourite is satisfying because it's a two-in-one. Bottom sends his regard to the fairy Peas Blossom's father, who is sensibly enough called Master Peascod. But as Helen Hackett points out, Peascods, or Peapods, were associated with love and sexuality in folk magic, partly because of their shape, phallic and seed-filled, 
and partly because of the verbal inversion of the term codpiece. Codpiece, peace cod. Codpiece, peace cod. It's a real grower, that one. Less playful and more brutal sexual imagery comes from the trick played on Titania. Oberon squeezes the flower into her eyes and wishes her to look on some gruesome beast to take as a lover. His hopeful candidates include lions, bears, wolves, bulls, meddling monkeys, busy apes, cats, bears, leopards and boars. Jan Cott comments that All these animals represent abundant sexual potency and some of them play an important part in sexual demonology. Bottom is eventually transformed into an ass, but in this nightmarish summer night, the ass does not symbolise stupidity. From antiquity up to the Renaissance, the ass was credited with the strongest sexual potency and among all quadrupeds was supposed to have the longest and hardest phallus. Which does beg the question, which quadruped came along during the Renaissance with an even longer and even harder phallus? Cot is not alone in finding sexual potency in the ass. <laughs> it came out a bit wrong. As Helen Hackett points out, if we go back to the golden ass of Apuleius, the only Latin novel to survive in its entirety, also called the Metamorphoses, and one of the sources for the dream, we find that the ass is a highly sexual creature. In this ancient Greek romance, translated into English by William Adlington in 1566, the hero, transformed into an ass, finds that he attracts various female admirers, including a lustful matron who rhapsodises over him, much like Titania over Bottom. So Bottom is no accident. He's not just a clown with the head of a stupid animal, but a beast in the flesh and a beast in the sack. It's obvious that Oberon and Titania have some romantic history, Oberon is jealous of Titania's other flings, and his own have not gone unnoticed by Titania either. Oberon demands that Titania turn over a changeling child, a boy she has reared after his mother, a votaress of hers, died. The boy never speaks and doesn't necessarily appear at all. Once the love potion has been reverted, he seems to have been forgotten completely. But some have suggested that jealous Oberon spites his sometime queen for having cuckolded him, first with other men and now with this boy. Peter Brook offers a much blunter reading. For him, the true story of the play was a man taking his wife, whom he loves totally, and having her fucked by the crudest sex machine he can find. Others have suggested that whilst that might be what Oberon wanted, it's Titania who really receives what she desires, finding in the sexually potent bottom, sorry, easiest way of saying that, the lover that she has always secretly wanted. Some have gone even further, making a connection between the two sets of royal or noble couples, Oberon Titania and Theseus Hippolyta. It would be easy to imagine Theseus as sexually threatened by his warrior queen, and perhaps the Oberon-Titania storyline is a kind of shadow play working out of his insecurities and desires. The concentration on sex and dreams has attracted a lot of Freudian readings of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which, personally, I find the least interesting. It's not that they aren't thoroughly researched and erudite, but it's a bit like talking to an articulate flat earther. Whatever the argument, it's all coming back to that one big thing you can't get past. And I think Shakespeare is just too idiosyncratic, too impulsive, and altogether too cunning to be codified by someone in a Viennese world. In a play as joyous and lyrical as this, considering the Oedipal implications of forests sharing the same surname as Shakespeare's mother, feels like being told halfway through an exquisite pudding that custard may well soon go extinct. During the play within a play in Act 5, Bottomus Pyramus stabs himself at length, during which he compels his sword, 
Wound the pap of Pyramus, ay, that left pap where the heart doth hop. One Freudian solemnly commented on this bit of inspired silliness, that what it demonstrates is that Shakespeare, who translated himself into bottom, was attempting a textbook root-womb return by stabbing himself in the place where he suckled on his mother's teat. It seems that something funny happening is anathema to the efforts of the Freudian as much as it is to those of the terrorist or pornographer. Shakespeare's own interpretation of dreams is interesting enough without opening the interpretation of dreams, in particular with its correspondence to the experience of the theatre. When we dream, we experience an intense present, and no pause for reflection or future planning is allowed. We are simultaneously the authors of our dreams, but also their helpless spectators. That is, if you ignore people who say they are lucid dreamers, which if they ever start talking to you, you should. At the very end of the play, Puck has the famous lines, If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. Thelma N. Greenfield says of this that, However voluntary or involuntary the involvement, Puck implies the audience, like the dreamer, is after all at the bottom of what is created. Not only the tense present of a dream, but also its grotesque yet implacable twists, its obscene imagery and its sense of waking unreality are all there in A Midsummer Night's Dream. What Shakespeare is brilliant at, and what a Freudian, truffling after symbols, slips over, is the recreating of the sensation of dreaming. There is only one real dream depicted in the play, that of Hermia awaking from a nightmare. She carries it with her into the waking world. Help me, Lysander, help me. Do thy best to pluck this crawling serpent from my breast. I, me, for pity, what a dream was here. Lysander, look how I do quake with fear. Methought a serpent ate my heart away, as you sat smiling at his cruel prey. Lysander? Vividly, Hermia has awoken from a nightmare into a nightmare, as Lysander has already trotted drugged after Helena, abandoning his former love to the wild beasts of the forest and her darkest dreams. Incidentally, to return to Douglas Freak and his links to the Theseus myth, this serpent that appears, or half appears, in the play may have a shadow of Cecrops, the founder of Athens, who was of twofold nature, being half human, half serpent. With this in mind, I'm surprised not to have found any Freudians buzzing around the fact that Cecrops was also the father of Aegeus, who in Shakespeare's dream is the father of Hermia. Dreaming about being ravished by your half-snake grandfather? That's got to ding a few ding-ding-dings, surely. Once everything has been repaired, the mortals easily persuade themselves that their strange misadventures in the night can be explained away as a dream. Are you sure that we are awake? asks Demetrius, who in fact has not been repaired at all, but remains, presumably until the end of his life, under the love spell that makes him want Helena. Whether you read this as a magical date-raping or a restoring of his true sense depends on your mood. Bottom, too, awakes with his restored self and quickly concludes that he has fallen asleep and dreamt his tryst, or near tryst, with Titania. Lord, what fools these mortals be indeed, for they have demonstrated their essential mistrust of anything outside of their normal experience, and been duped or driven wild by apparent abnormalities. The idle, mischievous, but impulsive fairies, on the other hand, are masters and providers of dream logic. And in theatrical terms, this gives them by far the most power on stage. The mortals, with their fond little plans, seem trapped in a romantic story from a bygone era when they share the stage with a character like Oberon, who can nonchalantly inform the audience, I am invisible, and watch the Athenians at his pleasure. 
The fairies are the ultimate wedding crashers, skipping onto the stage, causing great but completely arbitrary havoc, casually restoring order, and then leaving again in search of more fun. But they couldn't operate half as effectively outside of the forest, which, to match their ease of travel, seems to expand and contract as and when required. The forest seems, says Bart Van S, infinitely large and at the same time infinitely congested. It seems apt, then, that in practical terms it has been staged as teeming with life and magical tr- creatures, but has also been bodied forth by the performances with no set whatsoever. The forest, like the fairies, and like dreams, can persuade us of its power because we, the audience, or the reader, or the dreamer, are so willingly duped. John Bailey said of A Midsummer Night's Dream that, As a drama, it is nothing, but as a dream, it is perfect. Coleridge wrote that the play was written as a dream throughout, but surely no dream could make so harmonious a whole. Samuel Pepys wrote in his diary that it was the most insipid, ridiculous play I ever saw in my life. Well, you can't please everyone. Sublime or ridiculous, or indeed both, A Midsummer Night's Dream owes at least some of its dreamlike texture to its verse and some of the shared illusions and dramatic irony of the imagery we have explored already, as in Lysander stumbling into that telling description of the moon and its reflection. But the verse also marks out the otherness of its creeds of characters. The Duke opens the play in unrhymed blank verse. Now, fair Hippolyta, our nuptial hour draws on apace. Four happy days bring in another moon, but oh, methinks how slow this old moon wanes. It is brisk, forthright, authoritative, and not without pleasure either, with a rolling internal rhyme of, oh, methinks how slow, which manages to sound somehow impatient and restless. Next come the lovers, who speak in formal, iambic pentameter. I would my father looked but with my eyes. But when fathers and dukes have left, and the lovers can address their favourite topic, something different happens to the verse. Were the world mine, Demetrius being baited, the rest I'd give to be to you translated. Oh, teach me how you look, and with what art you sway the motion of Demetrius's heart. That's right, when the conversation heads lovewards, the verse begins to rhyme. This is true not only of these lovers, but lovers elsewhere in Shakespeare's canon, spectacularly so in Romeo and Juliet. But rhyme isn't only permitted to the lovers. The first fairy to get more than a how now is one of Titania's ensemble, who says... Over hill, over dale, through bush, through briar, over park, over pale, through flood, through fire. Now not only have we got rhyme, but a truncating of the verse line from ten to six, or depending on your stresses, seven syllables, lending it that sing-song quality reminiscent of Macbeth's witches. Fair is foul and foul is fair. Coleridge, who wouldn't have approved of my syllable count in that extract, was particularly enamoured of Puck's speech beginning... Now the hungry lion roars, and the wolf beholds the moon. Coleridge cooed over these lines. Oh, what wealth, what wild ranging, and yet what compression and condensation of English fancy. In truth, there is nothing in Anacreon more perfect than these thirty lines, or half so rich and imaginative. They form a speckless diamond. It is a wonderful speech, and I'm tempted to read out the whole thing, because it is just a pleasure to read, but... um, this is already a much longer episode than I intended, so I, um, so I, so I encourage you to um, read it yourselves. It's <laughs> point, the point of the whole podcast, really. Uh, elsewhere, the fairies sporadically swap back and forth between verse styles. Compare Oberon's conversational blank verse here 
How canst thou thus for shame, Titania, glance at my credit with Hippolyter, knowing I know thy love to Theseus? With this later incantation, What thou seest when thou dost wake, do it for thy true love's sake. This is trochaic verse instead of iambic, meaning simply that the stresses of the two adjacent syllables reverse. In an iambic foot, the first syllable is unstressed and the second is stressed, as in the word I just used, reverse. Or the line I quoted earlier, I would my father looked but with my eyes. In trochaic verse, the first syllable is stressed and the second unstressed, as in the word bottom. Or in pucks, up and down, up and down, I will lead them up and down. The different verse styles in A Midsummer Night's Dream can suggest magic, romance or state authority. In the final scene, Act 5, Scene 1, all of the verse styles are used as fairies, the duke and his bride and the lovers all unite. And they are joined by the one group we have yet to talk about in depth, Bottom and his crew of rude mechanicals. In that scene, they finally get to perform their play, Pyramus and Thisbe, and despite the fact that, as is tradition with Shakespeare's lower-class characters, they speak in prose and not verse, once they are in character, they speak the unwieldy and rather arch-romantic verse of a theatre just before Shakespeare's time. Fourteeners, or eight and six, as Peter Quince calls it, are lines of either eight and six or four, four and six, giving you These lily lips, this cherry nose... These yellow cowslip cheeks are gone, are gone. Lovers make moan. His eyes were green as leeks. This parody of an archaic and pompous verse joins the style of the others. And because it's funny and not as lumbering as some more solemn Fortina verse, it is very much welcome. Many of the memorably funny moments of A Midsummer Night's Dream come from this scene, from Bottom's Pyramus dragging out his suicide, the non-sequiturs and nonsense of the verse, and the ludicrous characterizations of Wall, Moonshine and Lion. There is something irrepressibly funny about some of the mechanicals' dialogue during and before their performance of Pyramus and Thisbe. It is written with such exuberance and silliness that it feels like I would only take something away from it in analysis. How do you critique the humour of an amateur actor getting so carried away by the prospective power of his performance that he cries, Let me play the lion too. I will roar that I will do any man's heart good to hear me. I will roar that I will make the duke say, Let him roar again. Let him roar again. Hippolyta remarks some way through Pyramus and Thisbe that this is the silliest stuff that ever I heard. Her new husband replies, the best in this kind are but shadows, and the worst are no worse if imagination amend them. Shadows was a term used to describe players or actors, lending a fourth-wall breaking ring to pucks if we shadows have offended. It's not the only reference to genuine Elizabethan stage practice. Quince despairs of flutes acting chops, saying, You speak all your part at once, cues and all! An actor in Shakespeare's company would usually not work from a complete version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, but rather have a copy of their own lines and the cue directly before them. Pretty much the only part of a script that actors are interested in reading anyway. On entering the forest to rehearse, Quince says, This green plot shall be our stage, this hawthorn break our tiring house. A tiring house was an Elizabethan dressing room where actors would make quick changes and collect props. Incidentally, an Elizabethan bill of properties, or list of props, survives from the Rose Theatre in Southwark, which includes a green bank and a cloak for going invisible, which might indicate how Oberon's disappearing trick was achieved. 
The odd phrase in the play about a part to tear a cat in was an Elizabethan equivalent of chewing scenery. It meant it was a good shouty role with lots of speeches and grandstanding. Interestingly, the phrase a ham, as in a ham actor or a hammy actor, came from the habit of Elizabethan actors and those of a period a little earlier than Shakespeare's time who pulled such extravagant stances on stage that their hamstring was visible to the audience. The names of the rude mechanicals are evocative of their trade. Snug the joiner, flute the bellows mender, and, as tailors were proverbially thin, starveling the tailor. The name of the weaver, Bottom, seems to obviously forecast his transformation into an ass, but a bottom was also the object on which a weaver wound thread. One of the returning jokes with the mechanicals is their fear of creating a piece of theatre so vivid and disturbingly realistic that they will suffer punishment from the Athenian nobles. While it's pretty safe to say that their worries are unfounded, their fear that the ladies will be so terrified by the lion that it would be best to add a prologue explaining that the lion is really snug the joiner actually has a real-life precedent. During another one of those Tudor period bonanzas of masks, banquets and so on, this time at Stirling Castle in honour of James VI, the live lions that had been provided really did cause some of the lady guests to panic. A more general fear of state punishment was also topical, as Shakespeare wrote the play in a year of summer riots, and protests and marches were staged by apprentices and notably weavers. Nay, says our weaver at one point, I can gleek upon occasion. Gleek is a weird word which meant to make a satirical joke, and indeed Bottom and the rest of his mechanicals could be said to satirise the lovers, despite the latter mocking the performance of Pyramus and Thisbe. Some of the similarities remind us of the grimmer eventualities that could have played out if it was a different kind of play. Helen Hackett points out that Helena's first thought on stumbling over the prone Lysander is dead or asleep, a moment that will be echoed but with an opposite answer to the question when Thisbe discovers Pyramus's body. Asleep, my love? What? Dead, my dove? And Victor Kiernan adds... Romantic love is called into question more light-heartedly when the magic drops throw Titania into love with Bottom and she declares her passion on the first view. Bottom and his friends may be bungling actors, but their play reduces tragical love to farce. And not only are the four lovers of this play the target of mockery, but perhaps even more so the two, live, two lovers of Shakespeare's previous play, who, like Pyramus and Thisbe, commit suicide in a tomb. Mark Van Doren says... Shakespeare has come, even this early, to the farthest limit of comedy. The end of comedy is self-parody, and its wisdom is self-understanding. Never again will he work without a full comprehension of the thing he is working at, of the probability that other and contrary things are of equal importance. The mechanicals, labouring without that comprehension, are, as I said, worried that the reality of their play will offend the nobles, Bottom goes as far as to say, instead of roaring terribly, he will roar you as gently as any sucking dove. R.W. Dent comments, What the mechanicals fail to understand, obviously, is the audience's awareness that drama is drama, to be viewed imaginatively, but not mistaken in any realistic sense for reality. The idea that these clowns could conceivably create a terrifying lion is in itself ridiculous, but the basic folly lies in their supposing that their prospective intelligent audience will have the naivety of Fielding's partridge. Theseus remarks towards the end of the play that the lunatic, the lover and the poet are of imagination all compact. But it is the mechanicals, not the fairies, 
who, through imagination, however limited, bridge the gap between the four story strands, who close the loop or complete the harmonious square. These rude shadows reimagine the lover's recent plight and stage for them a reflection of it. To do so, they body forth the form of things unknown and turn them into shapes, give to airy nothings a local habitation and a name. These sentiments of Theseus, describing the poet's eye in a fine frenzy, could describe the disfiguring magic of the fairies, but also the enduring illusion of the theatre. And as for these shadows convincing us, the audience or the reader, that they are more than airy nothings, well, that battle they have already won. We might never have bought him as Pyramus, but we believed he was bottom from the start. Whew, and that's that's just about all we've got time for today. Thank you very much if you've made it this far. Um, once again, after today and Sunday, when we've got a new Foul Papers coming out, the podcast will be coming out uh, regularly on Fridays. If you've enjoyed this episode or if you've been offended, you know, if you're a, um, a Freudian thinking that was um, sort of snobbish of me, um, I apologise, but please send any... Um, complaints or otherwise to eareadthis at gmail.com um you can find us on instagram facebook and twitter um we're, i think we're eared this on all of them so um that's easy and you can leave us a v- review on itunes that would be really nice um as well thank you for listening and goodbye <laughs>